Almighty and everlasting God, who dost govern all things in heaven and earth, mercifully hear the supplications of thy people, and in our time grant us thy peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. That's the collect appointed for today, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, January the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. It's been a, a kind of a, a slow week here this week. I mean, Suzanne's been sick most of the week. She's got the cold that I had last week, and I'm still you know, dealing with a little bit. Um, she had she picked it up this week, and it's much worse for her than it was for me. And it's not because she's complaining more than I did. It's because it literally is much worse for her than it was for me. So anyway, we've been kind of um, just homebodies this week in some ways because she's coughing and all that kind of stuff and you don't want to go out with anybody who has a cough because now it scares everybody in the world that there's a human being coughing over there um so we we've more or less stayed around here all week this week it's been kind of nice uh, to be honest with you i've gotten a lot done which is always a good thing um but it's been just you know sort of a, a nothing kind of a week so which is fine we needed a week to kind of decompress a little bit and, and I think we have and so I'm good about that I'm looking forward still to you know the next couple of months when we'll be able to get back out and start hiking regularly again hopefully she'll be her knee will allow her to do that so anyway keep her in your prayers also I've got other friends who have COVID and other stuff right now and so I appreciate your prayers for them most of the people that I asked for prayers for last week are doing better uh, this week in fact I've just come from the gym and talked to several people um, there who were gone for a week or so because they all had COVID. So good conversations with them. They're all doing well. All the people that I asked you to pray for last week. And just keep my friend Anne-Marie in your prayers, though. It's been kind of a, a rough week for her, actually. Isn't it? Uh, so just keep her in your prayers. Um, but anyway, so we've, we've, we've been, it's been good. I'm looking forward to, um, to the next couple of weeks. We've got quite a few things uh, that we need to get done. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Hope you're doing better. Hope that everybody is um, sort of over <laughs> the whole COVID thing. And hopefully we're getting to a place where we can get our lives back like they are in so other places right now have dropped a lot of their measures. So hopefully this Omicron thing will be the end of the pandemic as uh, as something that puts everybody's life on hold and changes everybody's life completely. Hope now that's moving towards looks like to be an endemic like the cold or flu or whatever. Hopefully now we'll be in a place where... Um, where we'll be able to get more life back. So anyway, just um, just a good week, a good week, I would say. It's, um, you know, it's cold, and uh, it's going to be really cold, in fact, today. And so anyway, so I hope you had a good week as well. Um, today we're, we're moving. Remember what Epiphany is. Epiphany is, is sort of the continuing manifestation and revelation of Jesus in the world. Um, begins on... Um, the day of Epiphany with the uh, Magi, and then we go to the baptism of Jesus, and then now here we are continuing in chapter 4 in Luke's gospel today. We're going to continue to look at the end of the story from last week. Otherwise, we're going to be in Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13, and then the gospel is Luke 4, 21 to 30. Um, and we'll get, I'll say more about that when we get to it. But, but now, so we're going to start with Jeremiah, and it's one of the probably most famous things that people know <laughs> from the book of Jeremiah. Pretty much everybody who's a Christian, at least, could, would say that, would be able to quote par, a portion of this passage. So the, Jeremiah is, um, 
an interesting guy, to say the least. He loves the people of God. He, he really identified completely with the people, enough so that, that he had to fuss at them and lecture them, but, but he, his love was for the people, and he, he ended up buying a piece of property that he knew he would never come back to, but just as a marker to the people that he honestly did fully expect God to, to do what he did, which is to return the people to the land after this long time in Babylon. So he did that to encourage them to show his own faith that God would do it, that even though he wouldn't be able to come back to the land because it was going to be such a long period of time, but that his family would have it. And so he, he wanted to encourage the people that his faith in the words that God gave him to speak was so strong that he was willing to take the risk of buying a piece of property. So he says, the word of the Lord came to me. This is the very beginning of his prophecy. Prior to this, we started at verse 4 in chapter 1. The first three verses are just giving you the setting. Who is the who is the king at the time and all that kind of stuff? So it's given you that information to situate Jeremiah in in time and space. He says, so this is the part that everybody knows. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were consec- born, I consecrated you. Consecration is to set something apart for holy use. So in the Anglican world, for instance, we would consecrate like the chalices and the patens that we served communion on, also vestments and things like that. They would be consecrated, uh, which means that we would pray over them and set those aside. There are forms of prayer for consecrating spaces. There's consecration prayers for consecrating of vestments and and other utensils that are going to be used in the worship of the church that that what we've said is we're setting these aside for God for a for only this purpose we're not going to if we have a dinner we're not going to use those candlesticks on the tables for instance we're not going to use the the patent and chalice to pass food on and they're set aside they're moved from common purpose to God's purposes and only for God's purposes and so that's what the first words are saying here before I formed you in the womb I knew you and before you were born I consecrated you I appointed you a prophet to the nation which is an interesting statement that he's going to be a prophet not just to Israel. He's going to be a prophet to the nations. But but before he was ever born, the Lord had him marked out for this very ministry and, and set him aside from, quote, common purposes and uses to, to God's purposes entirely. So he's set aside, but he's a prophet to the nations. But how is he a prophet to the nations? Because very nearly everything he ever says is to be said inside the nation itself. He's prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. And so how is he a prophet to the nations? Well, he's a prophet to the nations because, well, now we're part of the kingdom. We're part of God's kingdom and a part of God's people. And so in that way, he is a prophet to us. He has things to say about Babylon and about other things, but but he's a prophet not just to the people of God in his time, but ultimately he has been set aside as a prophet who who the nations will actually come and listen to over the long term. And so he's he but God had has said is telling him, This is who you are. Your identity was hidden. It was hidden from the world, but it was not hidden from me. I had a plan for you before I ever formed you in your mother's womb. And, and so this is an important passage for the pro-life movement particularly because we believe that God 
doesn't, there's no accidents of birth, there's no accidents of conception in the world that, that we believe that God has a purpose literally for every child conceived in the womb. And so when that child is aborted, then we have strong feelings about that because it, it's the snuffing out of not just a life, but also a purposeful and intentional life. And so it matters because we're, we're actually doing something to God and thwarting his purposes for the world. And so you can just only imagine what if these had been born, what, what could they have brought into the world that they were intended to bring into the world. And so the world is an incomplete place. And it's missing things because of these who have never been allowed to come into the world. And so that's an important passage for us in the pro-life movement, that God has a purpose for every single life. He said, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. So I'm young, and I don't, I don't even know how to speak well. Um, and it's similar to Moses's pushback against God, except for he wasn't claiming to be a youth. He would have been about 80 years old. So he, but his claim was that I don't speak well. And God was, was angry with him over this because it's like, I, I'm calling you to do this. Don't push back against this. I, I have a plan and a purpose for you, and I'm perfectly capable of fulfilling it with you. Don't, don't tell me that you're not qualified to do what I've called you to do. And that's exactly how he begins uh, here with Jeremiah. And it's also what Paul has to say to Timothy is, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. And so here, that's, that's Jeremiah's pushback is, I don't know how to speak. I'm just, a, I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I will accomplish my purpose. You don't have to worry about that. Don't raise this objection, and don't let anybody else raise that objection to your ministry, because I'm the one who is speaking, and I'm speaking through you. And I'm speaking through you to the people I sent you to. My word, as he's going to, uh, as we're going to see in Isaiah's um, prophecy in Isaiah 55, is that his word doesn't return to him void. That he has a plan and a purpose for his word. It's never wasted. And he knows what he's doing. And he uses whoever he chooses to use. And, but the problem is, is that we have preconceived notions in life, right? I mean, we have preconceived notions about pretty much everything. And if, if you get somebody too young coming to speak, then there's an, there would be an objection. It's a legitimate thing for Jeremiah to raise that objection. But, but God's going to use who God wants to use. It's the same issue with David, right? When, when Samuel is sent to consecrate, set aside one of uh, Jesse's sons, initially they don't even bother bringing David to him because they're not impressed with him. And, and so Samuel is impressed with every one of the sons of David that come before him because they look like the archetype he's got in his mind for a king. And then they looked that way to Jesse as well. And Jesse didn't even bother calling David. Surely it'll be one of these. And then, no, it's the, it's the youngin out there keeping the sheep. And so they bring him in, and God says immediately, that's the guy. And so we judge with bad judgment sometimes. We have our own preconceived ideas about who can be useful and what they can do. And God says, no, Jeremiah, that's not the case. I've raised you up. I will put my words in your mouth, and I will fulfill the purpose that I have for your life. Don't worry about being young. 
I was call, I'm calling you to be this prophet to the nations. But, but you may think it's a new call, but it's not. It's been there since before you were born. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. That's a lot of power. And remember, again, the parallel here, the Lord God put out his hand and touched my mouth. I mean, is this an anthropomorphizing or what is it It's actually that's going on here? What did he see? What did Jeremiah see? Because we see a similar kind of thing happen in Isaiah in, when he's called when he is in the temple um, after King Uzziah died, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angels are surrounding him, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And then uh, Isaiah offers to go. Here, my Lord, send me, because he's asking, Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And so Isaiah says, Send me, Lord, here I am. And, And then he says, I want you to go do this and he says i'm an unclean i'm a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips and then an angel takes the coal from the altar from the censer the 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 altar of uh sacrifice and takes the coal and and touches it to isaiah's lips to purify his lips so that he can now be the one to speak for the lord and that's exactly what god's saying here i put words in your mouth See, I've set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, break, destroy, and overthrow, to build and to plant. So he's calling him, he says, to be a prophet to the nations. And so he will prophesy to the nations, but he's given him great power. And with that power becomes comes also then the responsibility to use the Word of God, to do it right, to do it God's way, because you don't want to be out there um, cowboying it on your own. And, and speaking these words. So there's a responsibility that comes with it, and responsibility that comes with it is to listen to the Lord, to hear Him, and to make sure that what you're saying is actually God's words and not your words. And it's the trick for any who would teach or preach as well, or prophesy in the name of God. And it's an important thing for us to always remember that, that we have a great responsibility for handling the Word of God in a way that, that is faithful to it and doesn't lead people astray in any shape, form, or fashion. It's important that we handle with care. And that's exactly what he's telling Jeremiah here. And and so sometimes what he has to do is choose not an unwilling participant, but somebody who is um, who is humble before him and will raise an objection and say, I'm not able to do this. And, and then the answer to that is that you're exactly right. You're not able to do that. I'm going to accomplish it through you. But, but I require you to be yielded fully to me, and you need to be humble about what you're doing. You can't be arrogant and be my prophet. You can't be that at all. No, you have to be careful to listen to me and speak only the things that I'm speaking. And don't worry about your audience. Don't worry how they're going to hear you. That's not up to you, Jeremiah. I'm the one who has called you and is equipping you. And I'm sending you. And so we need to be encouraged not to be uh, afraid of the people that we're going to prophesy to, speak to, teach, or, or witness to. And, and it's not a justification to say, well, I'm the wrong person to do that. Well, you're never the wrong person to do it if God called you to do it. If he is telling you to do something, then, then you need to step out in faith and trust in him and believe him for, for, for the results of that. In the gospel, remember what had happened. Jesus had gone to the synagogue in Nazareth, read from the gospel of Isaiah concerning the prophecy of the Messiah, 
and then said, today that's fulfilled in your, in your eyes. And so what he's saying is, keep your eyes on me, watch me, and I will fulfill all these things. He's inviting them to measure him, to see if he measures up to that claim that he made. And so they afterwards spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They, they, they saw, they heard, they knew some things that he had done, the, the miracles that Jesus had already done. And, and so they speak well of him when he says this because of the evidence of their eyes and their ears. And so they, they hear this and they know that it's from the Lord and they speak well of him. And then somebody says, isn't this Joseph's son? We know something. We have a preconceived notion about this guy that, that is going to overwhelm what we've just seen and what we've heard. They're going to let that control, ultimately, how they feel about Jesus and whether or not they're going to believe in Jesus. Nope. We know something. We know that he is Joseph's son. Therefore, he can't be what we were just about to believe that he was. And the disciples have the same problem, right? I mean, there's things that when Jesus tells them about his impending death, his trial, his persecution and all that, the disciples don't believe it because they don't, really, they don't believe that that's in Scripture. They haven't seen that in their reading of Scripture. Their eyes haven't been open to the truth. And so they're judging him based on what they know, but what they know isn't so. And so when he speaks about this persecution and death, their immediate reaction to that is to say, we don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't fit anything that we know. And, the, and so we can get into that, that mindset in our lives. We can do it in a million different ways, right? I mean, I'm on a plane one time coming out of Knoxville. This is probably, I don't know, 30 years ago. But I get on the plane, and I was up in first class because I flew all the time. So I, so I was always able to upgrade. And, and so there was a guy sitting next to me, and I nodded and, and said, hey, good morning. How are you? It was 6 o'clock in the morning. I was tired and had decided, you know, okay, I'm going to get a nap on the way to Atlanta, which is, you know, only 25 minutes um, but so I, I'm sitting there and this guy's got this stack of newspapers. That's how long ago this was. And so I, I close my eyes and I'm just trying to go to sleep. And this guy bumps me and says, hey, you know, I, I'm done with the Washington Post. Would you like to read it? No, I'm good. Thanks. And then, you know, a little later, but not a lot later, he taps me again and says, would you, I'm through with like the New York Times. Would you like it? No, I'm good. Thanks. But now I'm awake. <laughs> And so I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go back to sleep, so I'm going to talk. Uh, so, uh, hey, how are you? Who are you? And Well, it turns out it was Hamilton Jordan, who was the chief of staff for Jimmy Carter, uh, and he lived in Knoxville. And so I, after that, I, fl I sat next to him kind of regularly, but, but I did not recognize him because I wasn't looking for him that morning. And it didn't occur to me, well, that's, that's the guy who used to be Jimmy Carter's chief of staff. And then uh, we were in... Uh, Washington one time with some friends and and um, there was a guy there and I looked and said oh cool look it's Jay Cutler and one of my buddies looked and said where's where is he and I said he's right there I mean he was not very far from us and so I said there he is he's right there where I don't see him I said he's right there that guy right there wearing whatever it was he had on he said that's not Jay Cutler and I said oh my gosh I'm sorry we're looking at two different things I said I'm looking and seeing a guy who's been Mr. Olympia for five or six times who was a, a, a bodybuilder and you're looking for the quarterback for the Bears <laughs> but it, it, you know it, it depended on which world you were in whether you would have noticed and recognized him or not 
and it just happens that I, I've got a lot of friends who are bodybuilders, and so they talk about these guys, and so I, I you know, I kind of know who some of them are, and so we, but but context meant everything. You know, he's looking for a big like six four, six five guy, and Jay Cutler is like five eight, five nine. And so he was never have found him. But but it's the problem that we have is that we bring a preconceived notion to it. And here theirs is, this is Joseph's son. And he said to them, doubtless, you'll quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Let's see. We're going to need some proof. I mean, if you were in the United States, what you would say is, is that, that I'm from Missouri. I'm from the show me state. So the fact that you did something at Capernaum, well, okay, maybe they misinterpreted it. I haven't seen it with my own eyes, so go ahead and show us. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And I can see that. I mean, I can see that that in my own life. I can I can see that. And and it's it is hard sometimes to 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 get uh, sort of recognition and and respect. When somebody's known you in a different capacity, then it's a it's a different way of, of looking at it. But in the truth, he said, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows in Israel. He was sent up to Zarephath, which is where Jezebel was from, in the land of Sidon, to a woman there who was a widow. Because what what Jesus is saying is there was no faith there. And and they wouldn't receive Elijah as a prophet of the Lord in Israel because he'd been prophesying against Jezebel and Ahab. He had been prophesying against all these prophets of Baal who were there, and the people had gone out after them. They had begun to believe these things because they liked the prosperity that had come into the land. And so Elijah, God didn't send him to any of those people. He sent him to fight with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. But before that, he had sent him out of the land up to Zarephath, up to where Jezebel was from, to a woman up there who was a widow. And that woman who was a widow received him as a prophet. She was willing to give her last bit of food to Elijah in faith that God cared. And so Jesus is saying Elijah couldn't do anything in the whole land of Israel. He had to be sent up to Zarephath, into Sidon, in order to find somebody there. And so the Lord sent him there to nobody in Israel. And so he's comparing it with the reception he's now getting here in Nazareth. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So the the lepers could have come to Elisha and gotten healed, but they didn't. Only this Syrian general has come down to see about getting cleansed. It's because they had a Hebrew slave girl who recommended, hey, there's a prophet here, and I believe that he can do something. So what kept the other lepers in Israel from coming to Elisha? It's a lack of faith. They were so familiar with him that they didn't even bother believing him. And that's what Jesus is saying is, your familiarity with me because I grew up here, and you know my parents, and you know my brothers and sisters, that familiarity with me is keeping you from seeing the truth, but not only that, it's keeping you from receiving the truth and keeping you from receiving the healing and the fullness of what I just read. Your unbelief matters that much. When they heard these things, in the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, so they went from 
speaking well of him and marveling in his gracious words, to being filled with wrath over the things that he now says, and they rose up and drove him out of the town. This is, this is a hometown boy, made good, but they're furious with him because he's questioning them, and he's speaking well of these Gentiles. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And so th- they're losing their mind. They've become a mob now. Those who had spoken well of him and marveled at his gracious words now are, are turning on him. And what we see here is a little bit of a, a, the, the, what happens at the end, right? When Jesus comes into the city on Palm Sunday and is acclaimed as the king, the son of David, he, that is a wonderful thing. But it's that same crowd who is now saying, you know, Hosanna, Lord, save us, that that same crowd a week later will be calling crucify him, crucify him. And so what we see is a mini version of that here in Nazareth. He went from being acclaimed to then they want to kill him. It's the same exact pattern that you see in the, in the Holy Week is here in his hometown and they're ready to destroy him because how dare he? And, and it, we, can, we can get to the place where we completely misunderstand people because we're looking for something else. And here with Jesus, they're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They're looking for the Messianic king to come and establish the throne in, in Jerusalem that will then be acclaimed throughout the world and, and that all eyes will then turn to their God and see his glory. And Jesus is not here to do that thing. And, and they allow what they know to overcome what they've just seen and heard. And we, we do that. We will fall back on, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's just old Bob. Old Bob can't be all that. We, some, I don't know what's going on here, but I, I'm suddenly confused. And, I, you know, there, there are people that I, I when I first started at seminary when, when my father died in 1999 actually I was in my last year of seminary that year and a friend of mine from uh, college called me and I, and I said what are you up to and he said you're never going to believe this I said what's that he said I'm, I'm actually a Lutheran pastor I said oh my gosh he said what about you I said well you're really not going to believe this <laughs> I'm in seminary getting trained to be a pastor myself and so we neither one of us were uh, we we were able to get over our own background and our own prejudices against the belief that one of us could be a pastor because we knew what God had done in our lives we knew how much he had changed us and so we were able to to immediately begin to relate to one another as two pastors, not the two fraternity brothers we had been back in the day. But, but we had to get over what we knew, but we could do it with each other because we knew the glory and the grace and the mercy of God in our own lives to transform us. And that's the thing that mattered. And, and with Paul, you know, Paul has to reflect back on this when he's writing in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how do we judge things? How do we see things? We, we judge things by the Spirit. We don't, we don't judge it the same way as we used to. And, that, and he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So why would Paul say that? Why would he no longer regard Jesus according to the flesh? Well, it's because when he did, he made a horrible mistake that could have cost him his life and cost him eternity. 
It was only when Jesus made a special revelation to him that he recognized the truth about who he was. And so he says, he said, I've already made that mistake. <laughs> I'm not going to make that mistake anymore. I'm going to try and judge people according to what I see in their spirit. I'm not going to I'm not going to pick it up based on their background and what's going on before this. I'm no, I'm going to I'm going to judge them based on what I see today. And I'm going to judge according to the spirit because I man, I made a mistake when I did that the first time with Jesus. He said, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's the critical thing for us to remember. It's a critical thing for me to remember that I'm a new creation. The old has passed away and the the new has come. And and I have to be able to say to the old man, no, no, I'm not going to do the things the old man did and the old man still wants to do. I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm a new creation. But then I have to also give that same grace to other people. Right? I have to say, you're in Christ now. You're a different person. And I'm expecting you to be a different person now, but, but I have to see you as the new person, the new creation, not as the old creation that I formerly knew. I have to see you that way. And that's, that's what Paul's saying is you may have familiarity and relationship with people, but when they're in Christ, they become a new creation. So you, you, you have to put away all of that and begin to see that person as a new spiritual being and treat them accordingly. And it's important that we do that, that we not bring our prejudices and, and, and the things that we know to the table when we do this. And, and how do we do that? We do it in love. And we do it in the way that God did it for us. And that is he loved us enough, even though we were yet sinners, that he, that he sent his son to die for us. He loved us that much. He, he, he sent his son to die for us, knowing that he was going to have to die for us and that his people would reject him. Jesus came knowing he would be rejected. And John tells us exactly that. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And that's important for us to embrace that in our own lives, but it's also important for us to see other people in that same way, that we can see people with pity and not anger. When they reject him, when they reject us because of him, then, then we can see them in, in a way that, that takes our own experience into account. I was just like you. I understand this. Um, and and if, I would be exactly like you if God hadn't given me a spirit and I don't know if he wants to give you his spirit. I have no earthly idea, but I'm, but I'm here to tell you the truth about this thing and to proclaim this great salvation that's there, but we do it in love. And that's the thing that has to bind everything we do together, all the work that we do, the way that we talk about people, the way we think about people who are opposed to us. We need to think of with, with uh, eyes of love in the same kind of love that Jesus had for a world that he knew that was going to reject him. And the same kind of love that Jesus displays at the cross when he prays for those who are persecuting him and crucifying him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then Stephen does the same thing for the people who are about to stone him. And that's the attitude we need to take towards all things. Because what we have to see is, is that were it not but for the grace of God and the mercy of God and the giving of the Holy Spirit in my life, I would be exactly like the people who reject Jesus. And so I have to believe and pray for them that God would give them his spirit, that they would no longer be held under the bondage of the flesh, and they would be set free in the spirit to recognize him, worship him, and praise him. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13, right? We've talked about the, um, 
the gifts over the last couple of weeks, and, and Paul says, you know, you know, okay, there's a more excellent way. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's talking about the gifts, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what he's saying is exactly what Jesus says, do all for love. Use your gifts in love, not in judgment for the world, but in love and in compassion for the world. Mourn over sin in the world. Mourn over the rejection of Jesus in the world. Mourn over the way of Jesus being rejected in the world. Mourn over the world. Don't treat these people as enemies. Use your gifts in love to bring Jesus to the table. He says, and then he's going to give us the characteristics of love, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's the thing that perseveres. And it's intended to be the thing that perseveres, but it's also intended to be the thing that guides us in the use of our gifts and in the way that we treat other people and the way that we evangelize. Love has to be at the heart of all of that. He says, love never ends. That's a profound statement. And it never ends because God is love. And so it is as eternal as he is. He created the world in love. He sent his son in love. He sent prophets in love. He sent Moses in love. He sent all these people in love. He sent whoever brought the message and the word to you in love for the world, not just for you. He loved you individually, but we can get so caught up in that that we miss the reality that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't just love his people. He loved the world enough to send his son, and he loved the world enough to send Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. And so it's, it never ends. All right, so if, if I've got one thing that never ends, I should devote myself and attach myself to that because it's eternal. It perseveres through all things. He says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. God doesn't reveal everything to us. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So all those things, all those gifts and everything, those are for now. Love is for eternity because it never ends. And once we know in part, then we won't need any of these things. We won't need any of these gifts at that time. And he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we need to be humble about the words that we speak, the things that we say. We need to be humble with respect to what we know. There are certain things that we know, period, end of sentence. And we don't need to be humble about those things, that Jesus was incarnate God who came to die for our sins on the cross and who was resurrected on the third day and has risen to the right hand of the Father and he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We need to be dogmatic about those things, but we need to be humble about our interpretations of other things. We need to be careful about our interpretations of other things. And if we think we've come up with something new, then what we have to do is have the humility to say, well, it must be wrong. 
<laughs> if I've come up with it completely out of the blue and nobody's ever heard of this before, I'm probably not right in my interpretation. We submit ourselves to the tradition of the church in that way. So we know the things that we know, and we're humble with respect to the things that we think and the things that we believe, so long as they're not touching on salvation. And so with Paul here, what he says is all these other things are going to pass away because ultimately we will see him face to face and we will know things as they are, even as I have been fully known. And, and who am I fully known to? Well, the one who formed me in the womb. That's who Paul's talking about. I've been fully known by him, but I don't fully know him yet. I'm not capable because I live in this flesh. And then he finishes up with, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So judge people through love. Make your decisions about people based in love, based in the best possible interpretation of motives. Don't impute horrible motives to people. Sometimes that they're... Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> it, it, we have to be better at loving people through these issues, through, the, through difficult times and through painful times. But, but we have to judge based in love and to see him as Christ saw him, to get his eyes. Because we never know whether that thief hanging there on the cross is about to join Jesus this day in paradise. So let's make right judgments, judgments based in love.